Welcome to Storytelling with Seth, a place where I honestly and as authentically as possible attempt to share with you stories I discover. Some of them are in the news, some of them are a bit of word of mouth or something whispered in the ear, and others are those rare opportunities where I get the chance to sit down with someone and talk to them about their story and in turn share it with you. I really hope you enjoy every story here on Storytelling with Seth, but there's really only one way I can know, and that's if you let me know. If you're using the Anchor platform to listen to this, you can go ahead and leave me a voice message, and I'd be happy to share it on this podcast. However, you can also reach out to me through email at sethsingleton at gmail.com, as well as on various social media platforms like Instagram, where I'm Seth the Writer, Twitter, where I'm at one more singleton, or on Facebook, Seth Singleton Storyteller. Please feel free to reach out on the platform you feel the most comfortable with so that I can hear what you like, what you don't like, and more importantly, so that together we can share our stories with each other. And now that I've given you an idea of what this is and what to expect, the only thing now, or the only thing left to do now, is to tell a story. Let's get started, shall we? The thing about a legacy is it's something you create day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, and only at the end of it all can you look back and actually get a sense of what it is you were doing and what it is you've done. Today on Storytelling with Seth, for this edition of the Weekly Wrap, I'm taking a look at the ever-evolving legacy of Tom King, the DC Comics writer for Batman and Mr. Miracle, who, it was recently announced, will be co-writing with Ava DuVernay a New God script for an upcoming feature film. How did we get to a point where we actually figured out how to stand up? A story that I stumbled across suggests the possibility that an ancient supernova was part of what prompted our human ancestors to begin walking on two feet only. I'm also intrigued by the legacy of Tony Horowitz, a gifted, talented, and highly regarded journalist who became an author and left behind a body of work that I can only hope to measure up to or even attempt. I was intrigued by a great story about an upcoming series on Amazon Prime called The Boys, about a group of hero-slash-anti-heroes whose job it is to keep the superheroes, powerful, celebrity-like personalities, in check when they perhaps don't quite do what it is they're supposed to do or what they've promised to do. And I like the idea behind this, and I've got a few thoughts I would like to share with you about. And finally, a quote from Natalie Goldberg that reminds me that when it comes to writing and storytelling, there's nothing simple, easy, or formulaic about it. It's about how much of ourselves we're willing to give in the attempt, and when we're willing to take all of that effort, put it on the page, no matter how long it takes. Thanks for joining me for this week's edition of 
Storytelling with Seth, and The Weekly Wrap. Let's get started. I love when I'm talking about something like renewal, rebirth, new opportunity. And I can hear the birds outside, awakening to a new day, promise and opportunity. And it makes it so enjoyable to talk about this great new opportunity that I've learned about for the writer Tom King, most well-known for his work on Batman for DC Comics, as well as a 12-issue maxi-series for Mr. Miracle for DC Comics that he won the Eisner Award for. And this new story that's coming out about Tom follows up the disappointing news that his 100-issue series for Batman would actually be coming to a close edition of Brady 5. And the decision that was made to have him tell his story, or the remainder of it, in a 12-issue maxi-series featuring Batman and Catwoman. While that was a nice opportunity to allow him to complete his story, I was disappointed that he didn't get a chance to finish it under the main title of Batman. And it's why I was really pleased to hear about the news that he will be a co-writer on a script for, or screenplay, for an upcoming New Gods film in collaboration with director Ava DuVernay. Um, I like this because Tom King's got a really interesting grasp on DC Comics and the history of DC. And I like that he's going to be able to bring that to some really interesting characters who represent uh, a very unique form of storytelling and a very specific history based on the fact that they were developed by, well, as he's called so often, legendary comic book artist Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby was the second half of Stan Lee's power duo back in Marvel's heyday. But as these things tend to happen, he eventually left Marvel and came to DC. And when he did, he brought not only his unique storytelling and artistic style, but he created a whole new element in the DC universe. That element was the New Gods. Essentially, two very powerful groups. One, the positive, uh, essentially the the good or light side, New Genesis, ruled by High Father, and its polar opposite, Apocalypse, ruled by Dark Side, who has been the biggest nemesis for many of the DC superheroes most powerful characters Darkseid was originally to be the main villain in the Justice League film but we did see one of his generals known as Steppenwolf when he appeared and fought the Justice League in that film I love that not only is this an opportunity for Tom King but it's an opportunity for him to work on something that was created by another very gifted, very talented artist who, after hitting some bad luck and choosing to leave Marvel for the reasons that he did, that's a whole other discussion, came to DC and was given unlimited freedom. And because of that, we now have these amazing new guy characters. I've been a huge fan, and what I love is that in many ways, this is an opportunity for Tom to follow up on some of the great work he did in Mr. Miracle. If you don't know about Mr. Miracle, Mr. Miracle is actually Scott Free. Scott Free fell in love with a woman from Apocalypse named Barda while they were both tortured and trapped there. And 
he gained a reputation for being able to escape from any sort of trap. And because he was able to do that, he eventually made his way to Earth with Barda. And that was, in many ways, the focus point of Tom King's 12-issue series featuring Mr. Miracle. So Tom King has already really delved into a lot of the elements that make up these two worlds, New Genesis and Darkseid, or New Genesis and Darkseid, New Genesis and Apocalypse. And because of that, I feel like he already has a great grasp, and I think he's already thought so much about how these stories appear visually, that it gives him a great insight into how he can represent them visually on the big screen, how he can take the 2D element of comics and bring it to life in a 3D element on the big screen in movie theaters. There's so many ways of saying it that sometimes I find myself just almost ready to mock myself at the idea that I need to find a different way when sometimes just movies works. I'm also going to point out the fact that it's a reminder that, for me at least, even when it seems like you're doing your best work, you're getting your best recognition, there can be pitfalls. And that those pitfalls can either be something that knocks you down or they can just be cause or they can just be something that causes you to stumble. And when you do, if you get your footing back, if you're willing to find your footing again and look around, the next opportunity could be staring you right in the face or waiting for you to notice that it's there. I'm proud to hear that Tom King will be bringing the new gods to life on the big screen, that he's working with such an amazing director and producer as Ava DuVernay, and that they'll be co-writing this together. And mostly because I felt that Tom King was taking some hard knocks recently, and now that he's had the chance to uh, move forward with a great work like this, I'm looking forward to hearing great news. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. Now this feels like one of those stories that I hoped would turn out quite a bit differently. <laughs> and by the headline, I think I had every right to look in the most positive direction. I'm referring to an article on Science Daily. It was a proposal that was submitted by a research organization with a title, Did Ancient Supernova Prompt Human Ancestors to Walk Upright? It's from the University of Kansas, and it points out that supernova bombarded the Earth with cosmic energy starting as many as 8 million years ago, with a peak some 2.6 million years ago initiating an avalanche of electrons in the lower atmosphere and setting off a chain of events that feasibly ended with bipedal hominins. Now, I'm a sucker for a title like Did Ancient Supernova Prompt Human Ancestors to Walk Upright. It's, it's so uplifting that I fault myself only to a small degree, and beyond that, I accept that this is just part of my somewhat optimistic nature when it comes to elements of our existence or development. So when I first read this title, I wondered about the idea of supernova appearing in a more primitive time and very vibrant in the sky, which must have been so much clearer 
than it is now with all the ambient light that we reference that prevents us from actually seeing the stars. And what that would have been like to early human ancestors and how they would have responded, perhaps standing, perhaps walking, perhaps reaching, perhaps following a guide sign to get closer to whatever the causality or causation of this event might equal out to in, in their minds, in their earliest understandings. Turns out, it's a bit more mundane than that. Simply put, based on this article and the research contained within, it's a paper that was published in the Journal of Geology. And what it points to is that over this sort of 8 million years ago, when the cosmic energy began to, you know, become measurable or registered in a way that showed an increase, there was a peak about 2.6 million years ago. So someone out there, do the math, roughly, I'm thinking it's something like 5.4 million years into this, we hit a peak. And during that peak, there's an avalanche of electrons in the lower atmosphere. And those set off events that would lead to, essentially, an uptick in the atmospheric ionization, which would then trigger cloud-to-ground lightning strikes. Now, we see lightning a lot in the sky, but anytime it touches the ground, there's bound to be a very severe consequence. And in this case, it led to a series of forest fires around the globe. And those forest fires began to drive early ancestors who had been adapting in forests in the Northeast out of those areas and into the savannas. And as they did, they began to cross into a territory that changed their movement. Essentially, early ancestors would have used their legs mostly as just sort of like a, a an additional thing, reaching, stretching. But for the most part, they relied on their upper bodies, you know, for movement throughout the trees. Instead now, they would be required to walk these huge distances. And because of that, it created a situation in which their adaptation would require their ability to walk upright in order to sustain longer distances on foot. Now, this all started with the discovery that there's a lot more charcoal and soot kind of scattered throughout different segments of the world dating back a few million years ago. And up until now, there had been little to no explanation provided. The other thing that I find interesting is that this suggestion is that instead of forests, you now have these open grasslands, and that because of it, this gathering of our earliest ancestors would eventually lead to the evolution of the next generation of man and our most recent ancestors. I like that this story took me in a different direction simply because I started out with the belief that, oh, this could be something so positive and uplifting, so exciting, so engaging, and so restorative. And yet it pointed to one of our most mundane qualities, one of those things that really just sort of defines us, which is our desire to run from danger 
It's part of our fight and flight. Now, in this instance, despite all of my best hopes and wishes, it wasn't about us reaching up towards the stars, but instead about us seeing what happens when the sky strikes down from above, ignites our world on fire. And because of that, we're forced to flee our homes and seek out a new life, thus sort of changing our evolutionary trajectory or our sense of place when it comes to who we are, where we come from. On the other side, though, I'm not going to deny that there's still a part of me that believes that as the supernova occurred, as the ionization of the atmosphere reached its peak, I believe that there were still beautiful wonders in the sky and that for that reason we might still have begun to stand upright and look because I'm a sucker for those great lines that say we reach for the stars and I believe that we still do and I believe it's one of the reasons that we continue to stand. I know it is for me. I'm sure that sometimes you can hear in the background my French bulldog Bruno snarbling, snorting, or preparing to whine to announce that it's time for me to stop with all of this recording and take him out for a walk. And when you're trying to get something done and there's just a slew of interruptions, distractions, me wondering, do I stop recording, not allow him to do that or wait until he's done before I do, knowing that in the time it takes for him to stop with the snarbling and the snorbling, maybe the whining, maybe even after the walk, that by then the cars might have started up and the traffic might continue to build and become that overwhelming source or force that simply prevents you from getting anything done. I come across this story about the passing of prize-winning journalist and best-selling author Tony Horowitz, who died at the age of 60, which suddenly is not an age so far away from me. And I'm just encouraged by the fact that I can't imagine what it was like for this guy to try and do all of the things he completed and to achieve all of these accomplishments. And then I'm sure there were moments when it was all occurring around him while he was trying to get something done that maybe it would never get done or maybe that it would never be the perfect version he wanted. But he would still finish it and at the end of it be able to look on what he'd done with pride, admiration, respect, or whatever, you know, sort of was the best way he could view things when they were complete. He, uh, he started out with a lot of recognition in 1995 when he was working for the Wall Street Journal. He did national reporting that revealed grim working conditions and low-wage jobs like garbage recycling, poultry processing, and he later went on to write for the New Yorker on the Middle East. And then he began working in books. And in 1998, he, he really got into battlefield reenactors and wrote a book called Confederates in the Attic, Dispatches from the Unfinished Civil War, which became a New York Times bestseller. And he went on to write a few more books, including Blue Latitudes, Boldly Going Where Captain Cook Has Gone Before, in which he retraced the Pacific voyages of the explorer, James Cook. Uh, 
And then he also did a second book, which seems to follow in the, the vein of the James Cook, but also to take it on a different sort of direction, which is, or maybe a larger scope, A Voyage Long and Strange, Be Discovering the New World. And it was a revisionist view that played down the significance of the pilgrims. And he also wrote a book called Midnight Rising, John Brown and the Raid that Sparked the Civil War. His last book, Spying on the South, An Odyssey Across the American Divide, retraces the meanderings of Frederick Law Olmsted, who wrote for the Times before he gained international fame for designing Central Park and other landscapes. When I was looking over his list of accomplishments, I was really sort of moved by just how much Tony Horwitz had accomplished by the time he passed away at 60. And I like that this great quote from David William Blight, who's a professor of American history at Yale, says that Tony created his own unique genre of history and journalism in book after book. His search for Olmsted's journey was Tony's own brilliant mirror held up to all of us about the awful social and political sicknesses we face now, just as Olmsted's epic journey showed the same for the South during the road to the Civil War. Essentially, this was a story that, if you want to read through the entire thing, gives an amazing account of a young man from his birth all the way up until his recent passing. And in that is the passion to work as a writer, as a reporter, and then later as an author of books that, well, really, that represented not only something to him, but something that he was seeing and he wished others to see. And through the books that he published, I I think he attempted that, and I also think he accomplished it. I know that that's a desire in the heart of many writers to show the world the way they see things and help them understand what they believe only they can see or only a few people can see and that if more could, things might be different or at least things would be known. And I know that as a writer, that's something I have dreamed and aspired to and while I'm not sure what my end result would be, I do know that if at any point when I do pass, if there's any sort of writing about me and it looks even remotely close to this, I'll be proud of the fact that there will be those things left behind about me that can say the things that I hope will always have a chance to be said for anyone who opens up those books, just as I believe the things Mr. Horowitz was saying can always be found for anyone who opens up one of his books. And that's why I think also a story about the passing of a writer, of an author, and of someone who was working towards something they believed in, to be less of a heartbreaking and saddening and mournful period, but an opportunity for reflection, admiration, and recognition, and really it's it's a blessing to know that that's a possibility for all of us. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. I'm going to be completely honest. This one for me is just fun. Just like outright fun. And it's shameless. And in doing this, I know that I am shameless. And I accept it. And I'm okay with it. 
and I'm about to move on. This is about what happens when an Instagram account becomes a book and it doesn't suck. How cool is that? This is essentially a book called Awards for Good Boys, which is based on the idea that began with an Instagram account by Shelby Lorman, who's a comic book artist. And her book, Awards for Good Boys, is about the tales of dating, double standards, and doom. And the article describing it in the uh, online publication Jezebel makes a good point about the idea that, essentially, social media and feminism can really get ugly. And it can be a challenge to get past... Well, as it describes progressive-sounding tweets and photos of smiling white women wearing girl power, t-shirts that were made by underpaid Bangladeshi laborers who were later fired for protesting low wages. There are, of course, numerous hyperlinks throughout this article to point you to the sources she's referencing. Uh, By the way, this is by Lisa Fisher. I want to give her credit on this one because I, I really like the tone, the direction, smart writing, and the description of this idea that Essentially, feminism and social media and the different trends that have been born out of it are, well, often tied to things like the uh, feminist coffee book with the feminist Ryan Gosling or the coloring book of Boss Babes. I mean, I'll be honest, some of this stuff I wasn't even aware of. But it points to how these elements are something that should be addressed because simply it's it's supporting this idea that sometimes guys should be rewarded just for not being jerks. And I'm a guy. I prefer to be a man when possible. And when I fall or struggle or do something stupid, something I think I try and learn from. But I think this idea is how the effort isn't always to help guys or men learn from things, but to simply reward them for not being worse. And Lorman, the author, points out that she hopes readers will be able to use what I or she makes as a way to offload some of the emotional labor involved in walking people, especially men, through why their self-proclaimed goodness isn't actually so great. And it points to how, essentially, you know, there's all these different elements about men that have been recognized and celebrated when they aren't performed or demonstrated. Uh, Essentially, I think I've used that word too many times now. The breakdown of the book, Awards for Good Boys, is seven chapters, which explore different topics from ulterior motive, manspreading, struggling to communicate with a man who refuses to define your relationship in clear terms. And then it goes on to recount Uh, Lorman's own dating experiences, as described here, horror stories, and to include the idea that her purpose is to challenge anyone whose behavior perpetuates a patriarchal power structure, from white women struggling to check their own privilege, to women who try and push their compatriots toward a soft and agreeable brand of feminism. And She makes a point as much in the first chapter, which there's a great pull quote here in the article that says, My work implicates women like me, many of whom are straight and white, because of the ways we form ourselves around and in relation to good boydom. 
from what I understand and everything I read from this article by Lisa, it appears that really the approach, while humorous, does its best to address the hard questions and to say the hard things in response to them. And at the end, there's an activity section where readers can fill in their own awards. After the admission that the author gives, which is that the book is incomplete. This isn't supposed to be the ultimate resource on all things feminism, but what it is essentially is an attempt to provide self-awareness, and that's something that this article suggests we should celebrate, and it's something I agree with. And I really like the idea of, one, what happens when an Instagram book doesn't suck, or when that account spurs and births this amazing idea that becomes a book that works. And it reminds me of how there was a big hype some time ago when a book written on Twitter was published, and it wasn't very good. And the idea, while intriguing, fell flat. And yet here's uh, an idea that actually not only blossomed, but may have led to a opportunity to explore more than one direction of what appears to be uh, a very a very loaded area of discussion and one that could provide, I think, many either sequels or reprintings or additions to this first book, Awards for Good Boys. I plan on picking it up and giving it a read through and looking forward to hearing your thoughts and opinions, if and when you do too. We started things off with a story about a comic book writer, so it seems only fair to bring things back around to a few stories that follow up on that idea. The first one is about a new series that is coming to Amazon Prime, and the trailer that's been released for it. The series is called The Boys, and The Boys is interesting because it's a fairly irreverent take on the superhero world and community. It was published from 2006 to 2012 by Dynamite Comics, which I find interesting because Dynamite, while always uh, a standard bearer and one that produces great content, has never been put into the same category as the big two of Marvel or DC. And even other titles uh, and companies like Image have produced a little bit more fan for fanfare <laughs> or recognition when it comes to establishing an identity in the mind of comic book readers and those who are outside of the comic book community but still aware of them. What I like the most about this is that The Boys was an attempt to look at what happens when those who are the most powerful need to be police. Essentially, who watches the Watchmen, who guards the Guardians, who makes sure that the people who are supposed to be abiding by the law, if not enforcing it, if not championing the uh, beliefs of right or justice, who comes along to do that? Well, that's the boys. And it's about how these boys take on a powerful supergroup of heroes known as the Seven. And at this point, superheroes have become something more than what they were before. They're as big as celebrities, as influential as politicians, as 
revered as gods, and sometimes they abuse their powers. We got a hint of this in some of the storylines that have come from other comic book creators in the past, but this is the first time that someone took the idea and stretched it out. And I like the idea of bringing in a group that works from the shadows, of basically suggesting that just hoping that the people with the power do right is not enough, that you actually have to come in and regulate when they aren't using their power correctly and remind them what the consequences are or might be when they do that. I'm really intrigued to see how this is presented on the small screen and how it is received as a streaming title. I'm not familiar with as many of the members of the cast, but I do feel like I've seen a lot of great content represented on television, and I'm inspired by the fact that the series creators, Evan Goldberg and Seth Rogen, who's made quite a name in film and television, were also responsible for bringing AMC's Preacher to the big screen, or little streaming screen. And that was a difficult challenge with a controversial character and storyline and book. And if they can make that one work, then I have faith that their rendition of The Boys on Amazon Prime will be true to the content that it's working from and also provide us with a, I think maybe a balance to all of the glowing, look how great and good superheroes are and don't worry. As long as there are superheroes, they will always fight for us and always be good and right. Turns out, with the boys around, we don't have to worry, because someone will be making sure that they're fighting for justice and doing what's right. A story that I found interesting, and one that is creating a bit of a buzz in the comic book community, is the announcement that Warner Brothers in DC will not be attending Hall H at the San Diego Comic-Con this summer. It's something of a Saturday morning tradition, and it means that a lot of the titles that are coming up and could have benefited from the excitement and anticipation that's often built at these presentations includes titles like Joaquin Phoenix's The Joker, Birds of Prey, and Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman 1984. Now, that doesn't mean that the studio will be entirely skipping out. It has mentioned that there will be uh, information and maybe more regarding the sequel to the popular Stephen King movie, It, known as It Chapter 2. I find it interesting because, really, this is a change in marketing strategy when it comes to comic book companies and their desire to capture the attention of fans who are loyal and then use that to build outward and attract those who maybe aren't familiar with the character or the storyline or any of the other elements that go with it. But because of the excitement being built by true fans who passionately share their desire to bring others on board... A word of mouth and other matching campaigns can begin to kind of ripple outward. Kind of like throwing a pebble in the water or any other item and watching it splash and the ripples expand. Hall H 
was where you made a splash. And without that opportunity, it appears that DC Warner Brothers will be taking a different tact when it comes to building the audience anticipation for these upcoming films. Now, the trailer for Joker was phenomenal, and I believe it was one that probably stands on its own to drive in traffic for that movie. Wonder Woman 1984 only had a screening clip available to those who were attending San Diego Comic-Con last year, and it since has not been revealed to the general public. So, while there was originally a push to, in the past, get as much information as possible out there and build that hype, it appears that this new strategy will be moving in a very different direction. And because of that, we'll have the opportunity to see how it is that DC and Warner Brothers plan to build the excitement and anticipation for their upcoming releases. After all, change can be good. And when it's for the better, I'm all for it. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. For a last little note, I was really inspired by a quote that I read from Natalie Goldberg that says, writing is not a McDonald's hamburger. And while that might be true in its just initial introduction, I love the fact that it's a visual presentation that puts two very well-considered ideas, writing, right next to a hamburger. And the hamburger is a McDonald's hamburger, one designed to be simple, functional, easily prepared, and meet all the requirements of bun and meat and bun. And writing isn't that. Anytime that you're out there, sitting down, writing, reading so you can write, researching so you can write, editing so you can write better, you're exposing yourself and making yourself vulnerable. And in that process, you're challenging not only yourself, but anyone you're inviting to read what you're writing, whether it's an idea, a dream, a story, a mission, a possibility, a hope, or a promise. None of that is simple, formulaic, or something that should be churned out in a matter of seconds. It's very common to see a lot of ads for writers in the job or employment worlds that talk about quick turnaround, fast-paced. And yet, when it comes to great content, when it comes to great writing, very rarely is it ever said how quickly something magnificent was written. More about how much time and effort was put in to creating something lasting, something that leaves a mark more than just a flit, like a, a buzzing, small, tiny, insignificant gnat on the periphery of your vision, instead a monument, something to captivate your entire attention and to challenge just what it is you're leaving when it comes to a legacy. And as always, thanks for joining me for another great edition of the Weekly Wrap on Storytelling with Seth. I hope you enjoyed a look at Legacy, how it evolves with writers like Tom King, 
what it can mean when it comes to a close with storytellers like Tony Horowitz. The adjustment for fans of DC Films and Warner Brothers now that they won't be appearing at Hall H at the San Diego Comic-Con. How it is that those superheroes sometimes need policing by a group willing to go the extra mile in the upcoming Amazon Prime series, The Boys. And finally, a look at why writing is never simple, and certainly not McDonald's hamburger. Thank you, Natalie Goldberg. My name's Seth Singleton. I've been your host for this edition of the Weekly Wrap on Storytelling with Seth. Thanks for joining me, and stay tuned for a little bit of information on how you can keep up with me and let me know your thoughts about this or any of the episodes you've listened to. Looking forward to joining you next time for a little bit more about stories, storytelling, and all the things that come with it. So thank you again for listening, and if you find yourself with an extra moment at the end of this recording, and you feel like you've got the inspiration to share, subscribe, or just tell a friend, well, thank you for that too.